I'm April and I'm Steph and you're listening to The Thirst, a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture as well as dissecting some very important topics of our choosing. It's June 2023 and we're here with an under-review mid-year special, an opportunity for us to talk about our favourite releases in film, TV, music and books so far this year. These discussions will be spoiler free so feel free to listen all the way through even if we mention some titles that you haven't experienced yet. Hello, April. Hello, Steph. Hello. Um, how are you today? I'm I'm great. How are you doing? I'm great. Shall we Shall we tell the listeners um, what's happening with us right now? Because this is, in fact, yes. our second evening of recording. Yeah, we loved doing this mid year review so much that we thought we'd do it for a second time. Yes, I thought I would, um, in fact, delete my audio. Or, or rather corrupt it deliberately so that we could uh, go through all of this all over again. Just for fun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, first time in six years that this has gone wrong. So it's not, it, we've had fairly good innings, but um, I, I went to bed quite frustrated last night. Yes, you didn't sound happy at all uh, when we discovered the corruption. That makes it sound like there was a, a like a... Um political scandal well, essentially it was you discovered the corruption it was a pop culture political scandal is what i will say so we're back we're doing this again it's fine because it means it'll be slicker mm-hmm. this time it's fine it'll be great we hope we hope so it's it's the time of our mid-year review we do this every year we um get to have a bit of a chat about some of the the releases in film tv music and books from 2023 that we've really enjoyed so far and then we'll we'll do another review special at the end of the year um it's worth mentioning before we dig into this that uh, there are some releases in our list that no doubt came out in the US uh, in 2022 but we get things um, some things on a delay here in the UK. Boo. So some of them might have fallen into our list for this year. There's also some US releases that are out in 2023 already that we haven't got yet, such as The Bear. Uh, love those release schedules, which cause us a lot of frustration. Um, it's often something that we end up talking about around the start of the calendar year, because obviously we end up getting a lot of things film-wise especially, that come out around Oscar season, which will have traditionally actually been released the previous year in the United States. And there are definitely a few things on our list that that's the case for. So I often find this kind of mid-year period quite a funny time to be doing this, this retrospective because we have always have like a very tight spring. So January, February, March always feels like we're in catch-up. And then there seems to be like a few strange months after that where we're then just sitting around waiting for other things to come out. Yeah, it's not the most fun. Another reason why I absolutely love this country. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so we're we're going to cover um, films first. And there are a few films that I know made both of our kind of best of 2023 so far lists. Do you want to take it away first? They're sort of... They're almost in order, but perhaps not quite. But um, I know this one is certainly probably the first film that we both saw at the start of the year. 
Yeah, so I was going to say these are sort of loosely in chronological order. Um, so one of the first things, like you say, that we saw, I think at the start of February this year, was Tar, which is Todd Field's uh, film starring Kate Blanchett, Nina Hoss, set in an international world of Western classical music. And it centres on Lydia Tarr, who's widely considered to be one of the greatest living composer conductors and the very first female director of a major German orchestra. This was something that we were really looking forward to. I think um, I spent a lot of the end of 2022 very angry that it hadn't yet been released (laughs) in the UK. It was so frustrating because obviously it did a lot of the film festival circuits. So it was just driving me absolutely batshit, to be frank, sitting around waiting to see when we were actually going to get to see this flipping film. And I absolutely loved it when we did see it at the start of this year. Um, I know it's been quite polarising. There's been lots of discourse and discussion about Lydia Tarr herself um, and the kind of things that the film is attempting to address. I think it does it very well, things like cancel culture in particular. Um, I love Todd Field anyway, and I'm obviously a big Kate Blanchett fan, so it was a foregone conclusion that I was going to love it. I have now seen it twice. In addition to when we saw it together in February, I saw it when I was in Berlin around my birthday in April, and it was absolutely fascinating to watch in Berlin in particular where the film is set and I think it's so laid there's so much going on with it that I think actually it really benefits from a second viewing because there's so much in there to unpack yeah absolutely I I wasn't sure whether I would enjoy this film or not because it had Mm -hmm. been so polarizing and I thought it was brilliant and it has the really strange feel of a documentary I think when I first saw it I kind of came out wondering whether it was biographical in some way whether it was actually loosely based mm-hmm. on a real person um, or actually you know whether Lydia Tarr herself is a, you know a real person because it's it's yeah it's just got a really strange air of um, feeling like it's documenting something perhaps it's because it's also so close to as you say some some themes and some issues that we're kind of talking about a lot um, a lot of popular discourse at the moment um, and I think it's also amazing that it's a film that is so fucking long, but also entirely gripping throughout without any sense of like really imminent danger. It's just got that sense of sort of edge of your seat tension, a sense of unraveling or fraying as sort of Lydia Tarr loses control that keeps you kind of completely spellbound. And the other thing that really stayed with me um, and is a reason that I'd like to rewatch this, but is also that one of the feelings that has stayed with me since February when we first watch it is that strange, almost like a ghostly haunting quality. There's a couple of moments with Lydia Tarr in her apartment where it almost feels like the film could veer into a supernatural tale. There's there's like some somewhere in the Lydia Tarr universe, there is a ghost story to be told. And um, yeah, I just really loved those moments. There's such a looming sense of dread throughout it, which I think definitely does have a a very kind of horror-led angle to Mm. it. Like, I think you could... There's lots in this that is obviously very horrific, but I think you're right to point out that it does have this sort of slightly strange supernatural undertone to it. It's uncanny, isn't it? It's an uncanniness. So this is my campaign to um, argue that Tar is in fact a horror film. But yeah, it's, it's... Brilliant performance from Kate Blanchett, like absolutely, you know, manipulative, powerful, dominating, uh, just 
captivating to watch um, and I can't wait to watch it again. So another film that we watched together at the cinema uh, around this time is The Fablemans, which is written and directed by Steven Spielberg. This is a film that we covered in a previous episode. We we paired it with Babylon, which made for some very interesting discussion. So do go back and listen to that episode um, if you want to know more. All I will say is that I think we were both maybe a little bit sceptical when the film first started because it could have veered too far into sentimentalism. But actually, we both found it quite personal, deeply personal, really, and touching. Um, And it was a really sort of warm and funny celebration of making art with some really wonderful performances in it as well. Definitely didn't anticipate loving a Steven Spielberg film as much as I did in 2023. Right? (laughs) Who'd have thought? Um. Something else that I saw at the cinema and I know that you actually watched recently was All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, directed by Laura Pratchett. It's a documentary following the life of artist Nan Golden and the downfall of the Sackler family, the pharmaceutical dynasty who were responsible for the opioid epidemic and its unfathomable death toll in the United States in particular. Um, I was really looking forward to the release of this, primarily because Nan Golden is a photographer whose work I've admired for such a long time I find her work to be so incredibly moving I've seen some of it in person in galleries in the past and she's just she means an awful lot to me just in terms of her sort of artistic legacy and I think that this documentary does a very interesting thing in that it it twins her own personal story with the Sackler family primarily because Nan Golden is someone who suffered a addiction problem in the aftermath of being prescribed some opioids for some pain relief and I think it's a really interesting look at an artist whose legacy becomes undercut by her own demons essentially Um, and I know that there has been there's not a shortage of media about the Sackler family and the opioid crisis generally, but it was very interesting to see this sort of fairly personal story interwoven with these much larger structural goings on. Um, and it wasn't something that I'd seen tackled on screen in this way before. And I just thought it was absolutely phenomenal. It really did knock me for six. I got very emotionally upset by it. What did you think when you saw it? Yeah, so I watched this very recently. I watched it um, a few days ago, actually, when I had a quiet weekend and I wanted to catch up on um, a film from this year that I thought I would probably enjoy and might might crop up on both of our um, mid-year lists. So I chose this and I am not... I'm, I'm familiar with Nan Golden's work um, and I sort of recognise it, but I don't know as much about her and her life um, and her story or work in as great a detail as perhaps you do. And I also feel um, I'm aware of the Sackler family. Of course, I'm aware of the impact of OxyContin and the opioid epidemic. But in a way, I feel slightly distanced from the severity of it over here in the UK. We don't... I think it's it's... I'm not going to say it's not an issue over here because it absolutely is, but I think the extent of it is quite different than it is in um, the US. So it's something that is, or I'm always learning from a from something that tackles these kind of themes. And as you put so well, there's a really perfect balance here between deeply personal storytelling and a wider mass experience that. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't feel uneven. It doesn't feel like one is sort of shoehorned in to the other. The stories intertwine in a really intricate way 
and a way that is sort of confronting and painful and also quite delicate. And you get this real sense of achievement at the end at what Nan and her fellow activists have achieved as a small group. But you're also left Mm -hmm. with the intense loss of those affected by the opioid and AIDS crises. So yeah, I was blown away by it as well. I think it's really, really beautifully done. Another film that I know we both really enjoyed watching together was Infinity Pool, which is the third film written and directed by Brandon Cronenberg. Um, It stars Alexander Skarsgård and Mia Goth. Uh, This is something that we were both uh, had very high expectations for in lots of ways. The look and the feel (laughs) and the themes and the performances and the kind of shock factor. Uh, We were prepared to go all in on this and it it didn't disappoint. I think it met both of our expectations. You can hear our detailed review of this film on a previous episode, so do listen back. All all I will say at this point is that I don't think it topped Possessor, but I do really like me some Alexander Skarsgård in a dog collar. What's not to like? Woof, woof. (laughs) At completely the other end of the spectrum, um, Rye Lane was a film that I was very disappointed that I didn't get a chance to see in the cinema. It just didn't work out timings wise. But as soon as it was available on Disney+, Plus, I think in around May time, I absolutely leapt at the chance to finally see it. So it's directed by Rain Alan Miller and stars David Johnson and Vivian O'Para, who are two young people living in South London who are reading from bad breakups who end up connecting and have an eventful day together. It was just so refreshing to see a British rom-com, A, that was set in South London, which isn't necessarily somewhere that gets depicted on screen in this setting very often, Mm. and B, just to have a rom-com that had a black British, two black British leads. um, It just felt quite refreshing, and it was a nice twist on the genre. I absolutely adored this. I think I watched it on a Sunday afternoon, and it was the absolutely perfect setting to do so um david johnson is someone who i've seen in the hbo show industry so it was really interesting to see him in a role that is very different to the one that he plays on that show and i hadn't seen vivian opara in anything in the past but she was absolutely delightful just so charismatic and funny and yeah it's just a very nice rom-com that somehow manages to convince me that London as a concept as a city is actually nice it is actually quite tolerable isn't it who knew I completely agree with you um this was something that I kind of wanted to watch I was intrigued to watch based on seeing the trailer at the cinema even though I'm not exactly known for loving romantic comedies or Mm -hmm. comedy in general but the chemistry even from the trailer between these two young people was kind of it was just really palpable so um, I watched this at a weekend on the sofa as well and found it super colourful and charming and funny with great chemistry between Yaz and Dom who were also very very relatable as young people with their kind of romantic woes and their insecurities so it just felt it's just a very easy breezy vibrant carefree good time. Next, uh, another film that we both found to be a carefree good time is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And this is a coming-of-age comedy drama film written, directed and produced by Kelly Freeman Craig, who also wrote and directed The Edge of Seventeen, which is a, a film I also enjoyed. And it's 
based on the 1970 novel of the same name by Judy Bloom, and it stars Abby Ryder Forston as the title character, along with Rachel McAdams, Elle Graham, Benny Safdie and Kathy Bates. And it follows Margaret, who is an 11-year-old kid who has to move with her parents from New York to the suburbs of New Jersey and adjust to a new school, new friendship groups and puberty. This was something we saw together on a Sunday morning. Again, perfect Sunday viewing. It's a wholesome and funny coming-of-age story. I was a little bit worried that it might feel a bit infantile, I guess. You know, usually I would argue that I'm never too old for a coming-of-age film, but uh, I wasn't sure what the tone would be, but actually I thought it was very charming, very well acted, very humorous and kind of, yeah, innocent and sweet, but also very relatable uh, and, and very enjoyable. It's just so, so wholesome, isn't it's it? It's lovely. Like, just so lovely. It was such a nice experience getting to see this. And I am really fascinated at who the, like, intended demographic is for this film because we were some of the youngest in our screening and we are by no means uh, young these days. I wasn't expecting that. No, I wasn't either. So I just, I don't think it's aimed at teenagers, but we no. certainly had a nice time. We had a great time. Um, and th- there's brilliant performances in this. So Abby as uh, Margaret is incredibly charming, but it was also so nice to see Rachel McAdams and Benny Safdie both looking extremely hot. Looking so hot. Benny Safdie in his dad era. It was a delight to see Rachel McAdams back on screen. And she is just gorgeous. What a great, what a, just a, what a great parent combo. God almighty. Lovely. Um, this is the part where I get to do my Paul Schrader monologue, because obviously I think one of my most anticipated films from this year was Master Gardener, which stars Joel Edgerton, Scorny Weaver and Contessa Swindell. Um, I've got a slightly bananas synopsis here, which I won't read out because it in, in the previous recording, I realised how preposterous it sounds. So the film is essentially about a horticulturalist called Narvel Roth, who is devoted to tending the grounds of a beautiful estate that's owned by a wealthy dowager and it's about a man that is trying to escape his past and grappling with his demons whilst coming to terms with the consequences of his historic actions which are all the things that you would expect from a Paul Schrader film. Um, I absolutely adored this understandably so we saw it together and I always feel a little bit like when you go and see a Paul Schrader film with someone else um I always end up tuning in to all of the things that are just specifically nuanced about his films that in any other context just seems slightly inane so the dialogue is a bit ropey sometimes <laughs> there's always a like a very needlessly drawn out sex scene um there is always someone writing at a desk journaling drinking some kind of beverage I mean the man started his film like this so like I was in from the get-go and I have never been particularly bowled over by Joel Edgerton in anything to be honest but he was absolutely brilliant and unfortunately quite convincing as a white supremacist so there we go (laughs) I don't know whether to say congratulations to Joel there (laughs) yeah it's not not. really like a good thing is it awkward yeah I mean you you have the floor absolutely as the huge Paul Schrader fan here uh, I'm more of a, I'm a person who appreciates his films, but um, I'm in no way as diehard as you. And I know we've discussed before on this podcast, uh, this this is the final in a kind of three film 
trilogy called the Man in a Room trilogy, which begins with First Reformed, then The Card Counter, then Master Gardener. And um, I haven't actually watched First Reformed again since we saw it at the cinema, not because it was bad. It's very, very good. But I was absolutely aghast and disgusted and so frightened by um, <laughs> what it was telling me. Not that it was news, but it I just was ab- I just couldn't sleep. I was so freaked out. I think often about the very visceral reaction you had to that film and our completely different reactions as we left the cinema as well. I was like absolutely reeling and like, this is a masterpiece, isn't it great? And you were just so full of dread and horror and like unconvinced by it in that initial moment because I think it was quite overwhelming and it's very much like not a happy subject matter no not at all very important but again maybe this is another film that I'm making a case for uh, as a horror movie first reformed definitely a horror movie for me but Master Gardener um for me I think this is probably of the three films maybe my second favorite maybe in the middle I thought it was uh meticulously directed as always you can tell that nothing is left to chance, which makes it quite a satisfying item to experience. And someone sort of described it as metive, which I also like. It's kind of maybe the quietest of a trilogy that focuses on troubled men. And as you alluded to, there is some clunky dialogue in this, some of the performance. I mean, it's not the performances, it is the dialogue. So, And I do feel like poor Joel Edgerton was stuck with some of the worst lines um yeah very much so and I I kind of don't get it because it's Paul Schrader is his films are so well put together why does he have such strange dialogue sometimes I don't know and I find it fascinating because he's obviously a screenwriter alongside being a director and obviously he's quite famously written several Martin Scorsese films Mm. so it's interesting that when he writes his own things the dialogue often just seems slightly wooden and a bit off but in the context of a Scorsese film it doesn't necessarily but that's something that you could unpack for days I do think that it's a very interesting end to that kind of Mm. late stage in his career trilogy you never know what you're going to get with a Paul Schrader film so I always approach them with some trepidation at this stage and I really liked The Card Counter which came out in 2021 Mm. I know that not uh, that was quite polarizing as well just because the subject matter there was quite full-on because of the things that tackled um, particularly about Abu Ghraib and the torturing of captive people by American soldiers Um, So this film in particular, I think, felt quite tender and very much a stark contrast to that. But I think it's a nice way to go out of this sort of little trio of films that he's produced in the last five years. And the man is not getting any younger. Paul Schrader is now in his 80s. So it is fascinating to see someone so late in their career suddenly just on and up again. Mm. And also choosing um, a name such as Narvel Roth for his main character. I have never heard of anyone called Narvel before. All of his characters are given such fascinating names. Um, Ethan Hawke's reverend in First Reformed is called Ernst Toller. And then (laughs) Oscar Isaac's character in The Card Counter is called William Tell. Um, Travis Bickle is probably the best of the, the Paul Schrader names. But perhaps he peaked early. Yeah, no, I rate them. I, I think novels are... Uh, can't wait to name my firstborn. Novel. Novel McKenna. So, April, what are some other films that uh, you enjoyed so far this year? Um, there are a few other things I thought 
it was worth pointing out. Um, I saw in March, Close, which is directed by Lucas Dont. It's a Belgian film, and it's about the intense friendship between two 13-year-old boys, Leo and Remy, which is suddenly disrupted when a tragedy happens. And it's about how grief can affect you if you experience it at a young age. I was intrigued by this film in advance of actually seeing it, mostly because Lucas Don had a film a few years ago called Girl, which was surrounding it in a lot of controversy. So I was a little bit sceptical, but I think this is so beautiful and I don't think it does elegantly touch upon what it can be like to experience death when you are at a fairly transformative stage in your life, i.e., that transition from being a child to being an adolescent and it was it it looks brilliant because it's set in sort of Flemish country there's lots of flowers and lots of wild landscapes that are perfect backdrops for children to be playing in so it looks delightful it's on Mubi I think in the UK um I think it had a, a cinematic run here and then now is on is streaming on Mubi so I definitely recommend taking a look at that if you have the chance um another European film I saw um which I'm absolutely desperate for you to see at some point because I think there's so much in here that we could unpack which is Sick of Myself which is directed by Christopher Borgley who I think is um, making an A24 film um, Mm. at some point in the future I can't remember what the name of it is but I I definitely read that on his uh, Wikipedia page Um, so Sick of Myself stars Christine Kujathorpe it's a Norwegian film and the brief synopsis is that Um, Signe is a woman in her 20s who's becoming increasingly overshadowed by her boyfriend's recent rise to fame as a contemporary artist. So she sort of hatches a plan to reclaim her, what she considers to be her rightfully deserved attention within the milieu of Oslo's cultural elite. Um, This film is fascinating and I can't work out if it's genius or if it's absolutely not. It's being sort of unfairly compared to things like the worst person in the world, but I think it's because it's about a woman of a specific age in Oslo. Yes, lazy comparison there. Beyond that, they don't have too many similarities beyond one cameo, which I absolutely adored. And there's, it tonally is all over the place. It has got aspects of body horror in there that kind of appear in a way that I hadn't necessarily um, predicted. But yeah, absolutely fascinating. And I do hope that you, Steph, see it soon because um, I think there are things in it that you will like based on other films that we have discussed in the past. I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued. I'm going to add it to my watch list. Um, Body horror, totally all over the place. Sounds right up my street. Fascinating film. Um, Something else I enjoyed only a few months ago was How to Blow Up a Pipeline, directed by Daniel Goldharbour. It's loosely based on the 2021 non-fiction book of the same name by Andreas Malm. It's got a really young cast of faces who you may recognise from Lots of other films we've discussed in the past, actually. So we've got people like Ariella Barra, Christine Forseth, Lucas Gage, Sasha Lane, Forrest Goodluck. The plot is, in short, a crew of environmental activists plot a daring plan to disrupt an oil pipeline. Um, It's really interesting. I've read the book that it's based on, and other than the title and I sort of the premise about environmental activism... That's sort of where the comparison ends, really. Mm. But the construction of the narrative is sort of very similar to something like a heist film. Mm. And I think that's why I was taken with it so much, to be honest. It's 
fairly short actually I think it's only about 85 minutes so it doesn't outstay its welcome has a brilliant pacing I think you're inherently disposed to kind of feel extremely tense and worried about what's going to happen especially when you know that there are essentially hatching this fairly dangerous risky plan um but everyone is brilliant in it i really like sashi lane and forest good luck in particular forest good luck i don't think is in enough films and i would love to see him in more <sighs> in the future but yeah absolutely brilliant film just brilliant pacing and yeah sort of touches on environmental issues but not necessarily in a, in a very aggressive way like first reformed so i think <laughs> you'd be all right steph oh good <laughs> Returns to Seal, directed by David Cho, is another film that I um, saw very recently. Um, so Park Jimin plays Frédéric, who's a 25-year-old French woman who returns to Korea, the country she was born in, before being adopted by a French couple. She decides to track down her biological parents on her first trip to the country, but her journey takes a surprising turn. This was absolutely wonderful. I think Park Jimin in particular is the reason that the film itself was so brilliant for me. She is utterly captivating, and I think she's going to be a huge star. Um, And it also just touched upon themes that I'd not necessarily seen represented on screen before, such as Mm. the wave of adoption in Korea to countries outside of Korea. Um, So that in itself was interesting, but it's got an amazing soundtrack. It looks absolutely gorgeous. It does interesting things with time jumps and time periods. So yeah, absolutely adored this. There's a club scene in it, which I think is one of the best I've ever seen on screen. Oh, cool. Absolutely worth a look. And then finally, the most recent film I've seen, actually, and one, again, that I was very much looking forward to is Asteroid City, directed, of course, by Wes Anderson. It has, as you'd anticipate from anything that he creates, an all-star ensemble cast. Um, I shan't name all of the names present because I will be here for ages, but standouts are Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Tilda Swinton, Brian Cranston. It's got a kind of metatextual plot and it depicts the events of a junior stargazer convention in a retro futuristic version of 1955 I absolutely adored this I think it's a real return to form for Wes Anderson in particular I didn't love The French Dispatch which was his last film which came out in 2021 it had moments in it that I thought were really brilliant but I didn't necessarily think that overall the construction of it worked particularly well um but Asteroid City seems to me to feel a bit more like an amalgamation of some of his really classic pieces he's not repeating himself but I think it just takes the sort of things I liked from his previous works um, and has created something that actually I think is just very interesting and layered and is doing very funny things with staging and yeah, it's just it was just wonderful. I just absolutely loved it. Um, and it's definitely going to be one of the best things I've seen this year. I think it proved to me that there is no one like Wes Anderson. And no matter how hard people try, they can't ape what he does, to be honest. All those TikTokers trying. It's just not the same. Yeah, I mean, he's a real auteur and he gets criticised quite heavily for his particular style, his visual style. Um, but the thing is, he is the best at it. Mm. So, you know, he's back. Um, what are some other things that you've seen this year that you liked? Um, I think I will just highlight a couple of horror films as I am um, famous for doing. I haven't loved a lot of genre films so far this year, but um, two in particular have been a lot of fun. One of which is Evil Dead Rise. I just love Evil Dead. 
just he loved so it. I, I love Evil Dead. Um, Evil Dead Rise is the fifth installment of the Evil Dead franchise, directed by Lee Cronin, with Sam Raimi in the chair as exec producer. Uh, it's a sequel of sorts, I guess. You can make the case that it follows on from the 2013 film by Sam Raimi, but it doesn't directly feature any particular characters or storylines. I think it just very much lives within the same universe. And this film brings uh, the Evil Dead uh, premise to a cramped LA apartment where a woman is visiting her older sister and her three kids. And the kids, unfortunately for them, discover an old book in the building's basement, which gives rise to flesh-possessing demons. Oh, sure. Of course. Evil Dead films are nasty. They are very malicious because the demons are having a very good time with what they're doing. Um, and therefore, these films are, I mean, they're they're kind of, they're grim, but they're a lot of fun. And the route to the dynamic action in this film is pretty silly, but it just it just doesn't matter. You, you get there quickly and it's blood soaked and it's a really good time. It felt very recognisably Evil Dead, but probably most akin to the 2013 film. It's not slapstick at all but it also still felt like a fresh reimagining of the franchise it didn't feel like it was repeating sort of yeah retreading old footsteps or anything like that it was just absolutely nutty the ending was insane uh it was just a really good time and then the other film i watched fairly recently a few weeks ago um at the cinema is the boogeyman which I hate to say because it sounds ridiculous in a British accent. Doesn't it sound funny? The bogeyman. You can't say that. No. Boogeyman. <laughs> it just it doesn't work when you're British. Mm. It's just embarrassing. So the boogeyman. Last time I'll say it. This is a, a supernatural horror film directed by Rob Savage, who is the director of Host and Dashcam. So Rob is probably known in horror circles for sort of innovative Lockdown filming on a budget is what I would say. Host in particular was a, a, a film made during lockdown that left a very big impression on people. And The Boogeyman is much larger scale and more polished for him with a kind of wider theatrical release. And I really wanted to see it because it's based on a short story um, by Stephen King from one of his short story collections. It stars Sophie Thatcher and Chris Messina, among others. So, yeah, forgot to tell you, in fact, that it's got uh, your old friend Chris in it. Lovely Chris Messina. Lovely, lovely Chris Messina, looking very handsome. Um, so he's he's the father of Sadie and her little sister Sawyer, great names, and they are navigating the aftermath of their mother's shock death all the while feeling um, unsupported by their therapist father, the irony. Um, one day, uh, a patient visits Will's office seeking help, and soon the family find themselves hunted by the same supernatural spirit that had killed this patient's whole family. So this is essentially about a supernatural being that feeds on the suffering of its victims. It uses Stephen King's short story as a springboard, but it does um, veer away from... That, that short story itself um, quite quickly, but it, it also feels like Classic King in that it is a story about grief and the forms in particular that grief can take for a child. Sometimes you want to go to the cinema and see fairly, I don't want to say generic, but you want a jump scare horror, horror film. And this is exactly it. There's a time and a place for films like this that 
draw out those jump scares, give you um, a lot of time in the dark, spent anticipating something that is going to happen and that is going to reward you for kind of sticking it out. But at the same time, I also think this had some really interesting set pieces. There's some really cool things that I haven't seen before. For example, there's a a bit where Sawyer, um, one of the little girls, is in the dark playing video games and she's using the flash of the video to sort of light up the darkness of the room around her to try and find this monster. The sound design is really, really creepy. And um, when you eventually see the monster... I thought it looked pretty unusual. It had some very cool aspects to it. So it's kind of generic in all other respects, but it also succeeds in being really grounded emotionally. It's a, you know, it's not just all about jump scares. It's actually kind of a heartbreaking watch. It tackles parental death and grief head on. And it it made me feel far more emotional than some of the the other bigger studio horrors like I don't know the Blumhouse Fair for example so I Mm. thought that it had a lot going for it and I thought it did the kind of storytelling it was doing and the kind of genre it was sitting within really well. We also really enjoyed hearing what um, you guys have been watching in the past six months. And interestingly, we got lots and lots of feedback on television, but actually not as much about film so far this year. So I don't know what that says. Well, maybe we'll find out by the end of the year whether people have changed their minds. But um, Sean did tell me that he really enjoyed Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Rob really enjoyed Rye Lane. And Mike loved Talk To Me, which we haven't had out yet in the UK, Infinity Pool, Tar and Rylane. It is interesting how everyone seems to be more TV centric, where I think it's not necessarily the case for us. Or rather, it's we've been watching a lot of TV, but nothing has necessarily grabbed us en masse. Yeah, I think that's very fair um and actually a lot of the feedback as i'll I'll get to on uh, television there's a lot of the same things are coming up so there's kind of two or three shows that everyone has really really loved and then there doesn't seem to be as much around the edges sort of other things that are going on so it's interesting so shall we chat television yes let's So first, we'll start with a show that we talked about in a previous episode, The Last of Us Season 1. And this was HBO's post-apocalyptic zombie fungus smash hit with the very handsome Pedro Pascal and the very lovely Bella Ramsey. Um, If you want to hear our full review of the show, please do go and listen back. But all I will say is uh, we both went in quite sceptical with... Not a lot of knowledge of the game. I think you had a bit more than me, but I think we both left having really enjoyed the story that it told and the relationship between Joel and Ellie, this kind of father-daughter surrogate bond in particular. We really, really enjoyed that. It's a, it, it ended up as a refreshing take on quite a worn subgenre. Yeah, absolutely loved it. And who would have thought that a show about zombies in theory in 2023 would be as engaging as as it was well i told you mushrooms were evil that's true i should have been listening to you all along (laughs) so i suppose let's address the elephant in the room the obvious big tv event of the century and also 2023 (laughs) was of course succession season four the fourth and final series of the Jesse Armstrong created show centering on the Roy family and the siblings fight for control over Waystar Royco. It began in March, finished in May, 10 episodes, 
and what what a magnificent 10 episodes they were. I was so hyped for this and I was saddened to hear that it was going to be the final season. However, I was relieved that the show would be going out on a high. There's nothing I hate more than when a, a program outstays its welcome, particularly when you get into like season seven, eight, nine. So I'm relieved that the British showrunner took the initiative and did what we often do in this country, which is do four great seasons and then and then leave. <laughs> take a bow on the way out and and what an ending as well right it's an ending that is it's exactly right it makes sense it, it does all of us with a horrible churning stomach it's a satisfying end but it's satisfying because there is no satisfaction for anyone in this family and there wasn't ever going to be so i think we you know, this season had huge build up, huge hype for us. And we were wondering, will they be able to close the story effectively? You know, who's going to come, quote unquote, come out on top? Um, and I think they did an absolutely astounding job. I've really found it fascinating, um, particularly in the build up to the final episode. And then in the aftermath of the final episode, there was so much discussion about like who was going to quote unquote win succession. But for me, the program was never about that. There's an absolutely phenomenal line in this fourth season that Logan delivers to his children where he says to them all, I love you, but you are not serious people. And I think for me, that's the crux of the show. <laughs> like they, they, none of them, you know, that it wasn't about winning. That wasn't the point. Absolutely not. No, I can't even fathom sort of walking away, taking that from this show, to be honest. But they it just they just did it all so perfectly. And it was a very I don't know, I've, I've, there hasn't been a dud season in this series. You know, as you said, thank God we're not running the risk of having eight seasons and, you know, season five or whatever is kind of a bit naff. Um, they've all been so strong, but this season in particular has had a few really standout episodes and it's been really emotionally turbulent. It's been dark and hilarious as always, but it's also been troubling and heartbreaking as we've seen all of this very deep rooted trauma finally bubble to the surface. And I think back to two episodes in particular there's episode three with Connor's wedding, which everyone was talking about all week. It was kind of the only thing we were talking about. And it was something that we knew was coming, but we didn't know it was going to come that soon. And we saw some absolutely brilliant, devastating performances by the likes of Sarah Snook and Kieran Culkin in particular. But I've also thought a lot about that election night episode, America Decides, which is absolutely suffocating in its intensity and I think we spend a lot of time really with those siblings in this season and we're to the point where you know we don't see some of the other characters as much as we have done in previous seasons either it's really tight on the siblings and suddenly in this episode we pull back and we see the the wider effect that the Roy's decision making has on America as a whole you know this isn't just familial squabbling it dictates the present and the future of society as ruled by the right so it was kind of it pulled us back and made me consider the wider implications of this show and the, the, the characters in this show in a way that I hadn't done maybe before and it was absolutely 
excruciating and uncomfortable because it was so close to reality as well. Yeah, there's a something Kendall says in that election night episode, um, and I'm going to absolutely butcher this, but it's about like letting the poison drip through. And it felt mm. like a, a line that was a perfect analogy for, you're right, this kind of ripple effect that these four siblings, I include Connor in there because I think that's fair too, um, yes. but the four siblings have on those around them and the wider sort of society at large. And I've always found it interesting that people focus and inevitably so heavily on Jeremy Strong's performance as Kendall Roy in this show but in this season in particular I just felt that Sarah Snook and Kieran Culkin playing Shiv and Roman respectively were just given their moment to shine finally and I think some of the best performances they've given in the show as a whole have been in this season in particular and that was just delightful, you know, like to give them the room to flex. And, and you know, I think that's true of someone like Matthew McFadden as well, who plays Tom Wamsgand. Um, I'm not sure I'll feel about a show again the same way I did about Succession. I just found it utterly, utterly captivating. And I think that it's just some of the most well-executed television we'll ever get to experience. The right, You know, just the combination of the writing, the premise, the performances... It's just really top tier stuff and there's going to be such a void in the TV viewing landscape going forward. There really is. It's kind of heartbreaking. We're just going to we're going to have to start it again. We're just going to have to go back, bore on the floor, start it all over again. <laughs> just restart our own succession Sundays. Perfect. Let's do it. So, April, what other television have you been enjoying? Because I think those are the only two things that we've kind of watched together. Yeah, there hasn't been a huge amount else, has there? And I'm not sure what else is coming um, in the near future on that scale. I think it's just going back to Succession and Last of Us quickly. It was really lovely to have weekly event television. Everything else that I'm about to mention has been dropped in full in that kind of perfectly constructed for binge watching model Um but I just really miss like episodic, like having one thing every week and having to wait. Me too. Sad. But um, some other things I've been watching, I absolutely mainlined Jury Duty on Amazon Prime and Freebie. The series chronicles the inner workings of a jury trial in the US through the eyes of juror Ronald Gladden who is unaware that his jury duty summons was not official and that everyone in the courtroom around him is an actor. Everything that happens inside and outside of the courtroom is meticulously planned, but Ronald doesn't know it. This has a really nice parks and recreation kind of documentary style comedy tone to it. And I think that's very purposeful. Ronald, the guy who has absolutely no idea what is going on is an absolute sweetheart and I think there are about eight episodes in the season and the finale itself is where there's the big reveal and he is finally told what's been going on um, and his reaction to it is absolutely perfect I think that the production crew and staff must have been rubbing their hands together with glee when they realized that actually they'd hit the jackpot with him they'd found themselves <laughs> a winner with him because he just perfectly handles everything around him with such grace and he's so polite and lovely towards his fellow jurors even when they're doing like absolutely bananas things I was often thinking like there's no way I would react as calm as he is to this absolutely preposterous situation unfolding 
I found it interesting to discover that one of the people involved in the show's conception has worked with Sasha Baron Cohen for a number of years on the varying projects that Sasha has, including things like Borat, which makes absolute sense in retrospect. Um, Actor James Marsden also appears on the show as himself, because obviously, given that the jury takes place in Los Angeles, um, it's sort of feasible that you would end up on a jury trial with um someone who was famous and he's just absolutely delightful i love james barston he's so good and he is just he really plays along with this and has it seems to be having an absolute whale of a time hugely underrated i think as an actor so underrated and i thoroughly recommend jury duty um i did find it interesting to see that this is like the most watched TV show on Amazon Prime of like all time, mm. which is fascinating compared to things like what it would consider its banner shows. So things like Lord of the Rings in particular. And I did love Lord of the Rings. You did love it. But uh, yeah, if you get the chance to watch Jury Duty, um, I thoroughly recommend it. It's just absolutely wonderful. If he knows now that this is not real, is so they, is it a mini series? They're just doing one season? Well, I don't really know. I, I'm i assuming that you could get away with doing another series, but I can't imagine they would do a jury again because I no. think now, if like, for example, if I got a jury summons at this point, I think now I'd be like, oh, is this real? Is this not? You know, <laughs> like you'd be on the lookout for things. Um, so I'm not really sure they could ever replicate it, but I'm sure that they will because it's been such a success that I can't imagine that they would just draw a line under it that easily. Be like fake McDonald's next time or something. I was absolutely delighted by the return of I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. Uh, Season three of the American sketch show dropped at the end of May. Um, It stars the titular Tim Robinson, who also wrote on the show. Many of the sketches revolve around someone making an embarrassing mistake in a social or professional setting, then kind of refusing to admit it and then stubbornly trying to convince everyone that they're right and everyone around them is wrong. That's an incredibly reductive description of what does happen, but that is frequently the trajectory that these sketches take. Um, The show leans heavily on like cringe comedy and elements of surreal humour. It's absolutely subversive and just very, very bizarre. I can completely understand why a lot of people absolutely hate it or can't get (laughs) on with it but I think it's absolutely brilliant and it's definitely not my favorite of the three seasons but I was so glad to see it come back and I watched it I mean it didn't take very long because the episodes are so short they're about 20 minutes long so they're perfect bite-sized chunks which to be honest is probably about as long as you'd want them because I think anything longer than that might just get a bit too much and the only other thing that I've watched so far this year and to be fair I've only watched three episodes of it and I won't wax on about it for too long because we will be covering it in a future episode is season two of the bear whoop, whoop. all episodes dropped in the united states uh last week on june 21st and it will be airing in the uk on july 21st like i said i've watched the first three episodes and i'm so delighted to rejoin kami and the rest of the crew at the original beef of chicago land as they navigate their planned restaurant rebrand and renovations boy am i glad to have to spend an inordinate amount of time looking at jeremy allen white's eyes again oh my what a treat god beautiful husky eyes gorgeous um and i can't wait to discuss it with you in full um when we've both watched it i am very very 
very excited. Um, is there anything else that you've watched and enjoyed? Yes, there's, yeah, there's a few things actually. So something that I didn't expect to watch or enjoy, but ended up doing both, is uh, Dead Ringers, which is an Amazon Prime miniseries based on the David Cronenberg film of the same name. And I was pulled, I was kind of drawn to watching this in the end because it features a double performance by Rachel Weiss. So she plays two identical, she plays identical twins, Elliot and Beverly Mantle, and they are the superstars of their medical field. And they're working towards transforming the way women give birth with by building their own medical centre. Um, but this also includes performing ethically questionable procedures on infertile women. Um, so it kind of really turns turns the original film on its head. It's got the twin female sort of protagonist antagonists, and it also really turns the focus of the body horror fully onto pregnancy and the female body, which for a show that's got quite a lot of blood is pretty shocking. It's it's mostly shocking because <laughs> of the um, true reality of pregnancy and what women have to go to to give birth. So it's very, very darkly funny. It's got a very strange sense of humour that some people will love and some people will not like. But I also found it very emotional. And there were a few times when I was watching the reality of what some of these women were going through, the highs and the lows, and the kind of very natural, to be honest, natural aspects of carrying children and giving birth kind of brought me to tears. They were it's just more, I mean, it's it's brilliant and mortifying um, what women have to go through. Um, it's got fantastic double performance by Rachel Weisz. She is so good in it. She is the main draw and she is the reason why you carry on watching this extremely bizarre show. Not everyone will handle its tone, but there were some really standout moments for me. And there's also a very strange episode kind of towards the end that almost feels like a haunting in a big old house that I, I really loved. So it's an odd one. Um, I could not fathom whether you would like it or not, April. You, I think you would probably appreciate some of its parts, but maybe not all of it. And it's, yeah, certainly not going to suit everyone, but I thought it was absolutely fascinating to watch and something that I hadn't come across sort of experienced through television before. I think you're very brave for watching it. I absolutely love Rachel Weisz, so I was so keen to give it a go, but the childbirth aspect of it just absolutely intimidates me. So um, hats off for getting through it. It's quite scary. Mm. Our bodies are quite a lot. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. And another, well, I want to say it's a horror series. It is a horror series, but maybe it's a horror sci-fi series. That might be more accurate. Um, it's something that I w started watching recently that I don't think I'd mentioned to you about before. And it's a show called From, which is by John Griffin for Epics. Um, and it's kind of been billed as From the Makers of Lost, which probably says all you need to know really. But I guess the premise is that the show takes place in uh, a, this sort of nightmarish town in the middle of America, which essentially traps everyone who enters it. So once you've entered, you can't leave. And all of these residents are sort of striving to stay alive and to build a community together, whilst also being plagued by these really terrifying monsters that come out to... Um, attack them at night so they're safe during the day but these things come out of the forest 
um, in the nighttime and quite literally start tapping on their doors and windows. And they appear like real people and they often appear like people that you know and love. So I was kind of drawn to this because it had had a lot of discussion on the Twitter app. Uh, Lots of people (laughs) saying, you know, this is really underrated. Why is this not got any marketing behind it? Why is no one talking about it? And it's also got, um, and I'm going to butcher his name because I didn't check it on YouTube beforehand. Is it Harold Perrineau? That's how I would pronounce it. Okay, so Harold Perrineau, hopefully, as Boyd, the self-appointed sheriff of the town. So uh, that's essentially the guy who plays Michael from Lost. And that's the only... Uh, actor on this show that I recognise actually but it was really really gripping from the outset when I started to watch it it's super creepy has kind of it follows vibes where you've got these people you know and love tapping outside your window asking to come in Um, it's got the my favourite small town ensemble feel of a Stephen King book you kind of get to know all of the players and their backstories and their relationships and it's quite a slow build. And it, I I can already tell I'm through season one. I've just started season two, which is airing at the moment in the US and will start airing on Now TV in July, I think, or a little bit later in the year. Um, there's just going to be loads of unanswered questions in this, which is where the whole lost element comes in. I do hope that season, the rest of season two, can maintain the strength of season one. It's super entertaining, super gripping. It's not prestige television by any stretch of the imagination, really, but we don't always need that. This feels like really great horror sci-fi cable TV. Uh, And then a handful of other things that I've enjoyed that are of a lighter tone. Um, I've really got back into Queer Eye. Who would have thought? Love this. Didn't know this was coming. Um, I think I looked back on Netflix and we I got as far as like two episodes into season three. And I know we really loved this when season one came out and then I just sort of trailed off. And I think maybe part of that was because it was leaning quite heavily into the, I don't want to call them sob stories. They're not sob stories, but yeah, the kind of, you know, the, the reality TV effect of sort of, talking about people's struggles or difficult pasts it was just getting a little bit overly sentimental Mm -hmm. I guess for me but I was having a rubbish weekend the other weekend and I wanted to sit on the sofa and watch something uplifting so I put on series seven of Queer Eye that's just come out on Netflix which is set in New Orleans and I'm back into it I think they've kind of done a good job of pulling it back featuring you know very very deserving people who um should be recognised and deserve to have this kind of transformative experience. But at the same time, it wasn't going too heavy on the violins. So having a great time with that. Love Jonathan Van Ness. Good times. Something else I've watched that is a good time, definitely, that I know you will be catching up on at some point, no doubt, is uh, Poker Face Season 1. Um, this Ooh, came yes. out. Yes, this came out a little while ago in the US and has only just started airing in the UK. So a lot of people are going to be catching up. And this is a crime drama mystery of the week series by Ryan Johnson for Peacock. It stars Natasha Leon as Charlie Kale, who is a casino worker on the run who entangles herself into several mysterious deaths of strangers along the way. It is essentially Columbo in a modern setting. It's. <laughs> Super fun. It has the sort of Russian doll effect, not just because of Natasha Leon, but 
it's just a lot of fun in the same way that show was. It's got fantastic guests. I really enjoy it. The people that I wasn't expecting to see. So I, I hadn't read the sort of guest list beforehand and I didn't realise until I was watching it that Chloe Sevigny is in one episode playing vo- the lead vocalist in a metal band. We've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt in um, one of the final episodes playing this kind of, this guy on house arrest. If you enjoyed Knives Out or Glass Onion by Ryan Johnson, I think you'll really enjoy this. It's super easy to watch mystery of the week series so you can pick it up and drop it whenever you want to funny satisfying storytelling and then the other thing i will give a very quick shout out to is shadow and bone season two because i can't help myself i spoke about season one before it's just so much fun great escapism I think that possibly it is getting a little bit convoluted for what is essentially a fantasy YA show, but I also felt that about the first season and I was still hooked. I just love all of the characters in it, especially Jessie Maylie as Alina Starkov. Just a good time, wholesome, wholesome content. So we had a big old list from um, listeners and friends of shows that they've really been enjoying. So Nell said she really enjoyed Black Mirror season six and Yellow Jacket season two, which I am yet to finish. Mark loved Poker Face season one, The Last of Us and Beef. Sean also loved The Last of Us. Phil loved Beef, The Last of Us and The Mandalorian season three. Simone also loved Shadow and Bone season two, like me, um, as well as Ted Lasso season three and Succession. Georgie loved Daisy Jones and the Six, which um, I also really enjoyed, actually. I did I did like Daisy Jones uh, and she enjoyed Queen Charlotte as well. Tori has enjoyed Deadlock season one, Jury Duty and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel season five. Laura liked Silo season one, The Last of Us and Jury Duty. Sophie loves Succession, The Last of Us, Extraordinary Season 1 and the other two Season 3. And Mike loved The Last of Us, Succession and Black Mirror. Lovely range of shows there that I have absolutely not watched and probably won't have the time to do. Particularly Daisy Jones and the Six, considering I was obsessed with that book. Such a good book. And I will say I thought whatever adaptation they did of that would be completely cringe. And it's not cringe at all. It is good. The only reason I didn't include it in my roundup was because I ended up watching it in about three chunks. I kind of watch a few episodes, leave it for about a fortnight and then pick it up again. So I thought, actually, you weren't addicted enough to get through it, you know, to really kind of binge it, I guess. So I thought, "Mm, I'll leave it in the good but not great pile. So now we've covered film and TV, we will naturally move on to music. I feel like there's not a huge amount of new music that I've listened to and this was an interesting exercise in reminding myself a what actually came out this year and b that all I've done for the last six months is still aggressively listen to Beyonce's Renaissance (laughs) which famously obviously came out in 2022 so thanks for Last FM for confirming that for me however there are a few things that I have definitely loved and I know you have too we'll start with probably the most obvious choice for us which is The Record by Boy Genius their first proper full length and that's the band that consists of Julian Baker Phoebe Bridges Lucy Dacus as if you didn't already know Um, their self-titled EP came out in 2018 so I was absolutely elated when news dropped they were finally releasing their full-length album and it's great I've listened to it so so much I think it's a perfect combination of all of their individual 
wonderful careers um i love them all individually and i just think when they do have this union together they just create music that is just so absolutely brilliant yes it's a fantastic record i really love listening to this it's going to be a great listen for the rest of the summer as well and i'm looking forward to us seeing them in august what a treat that will be a lovely lovely treat Another record that I know we both have really enjoyed is Paramore's sixth studio album, This Is Why. Um, And this is their first album in six years as well. Can you believe that After Laughter came out six years ago? Isn't that mad? Time is a very weird construct at this point. But um, I personally didn't love After Laughter. I like synth pop, but I didn't feel like I needed Paramore to do synth pop for me. Mm -hmm. So this feels like a bit of a return to form for them. It feels like a mixture of Paramore's pop punk roots and Hayley's solo work. Then it kind of combines for this overall post-punky vibe that's um, just brilliant. I I love that we're still enjoying Paramore in the year of 2023. I was really pleased to see that they'd returned. I know Hayley had been doing her solo career in between and I was slightly less fond of her musical output as an individual, but I just absolutely love her. And with this new album in particular, it's just been really nice seeing lots of footage of them on tour, just quite clearly having an absolute blast. And I just think that she's delightful. And I do think this... I like you, I was sort of less bothered by After Laughter. So this just, I was really blown away by how much I instantly loved this. And I absolutely know that I'm going to be listening to it nonstop over the summer. Absolutely. Hayley Williams to join Boy Genius when? God, imagine. April, what else have you been enjoying music-wise in 2023 so far? There's just a handful of other things that I've definitely been going back to again and again. The first most obvious choice for me is the first two pages of Frankenstein, which is the ninth studio album from The National. It's the follow-up to 2019's I Am Easy To Find, features guest appearances from people like Sufjan Stevens, Phoebe Bridges and Taylor Swift. Um, I had managed to see some of the songs on this album performed live when I saw the band last summer so it was lovely to finally get my hands on the studio versions of those and at this point it is like shooting fish in a barrel where the national are concerned (laughs) they could release anything and I would probably adore it Um, I definitely don't like this album so far as much as I did I Am Easy to Find but that's really top tier one for me but it's just very nice to have them back and I, I'm seeing them live in September and I can't wait. Um, the thing I will say about this album is that I will go on record by saying that I absolutely hate the album cover for this and it is driving me slightly mad. <laughs> oh, really? To look at it. Yeah, I think it's awful. I'm going to have to look it up. It's really hideous. Um, but that's it, really. That's the downside to it. I think it's a great record. Just shame about the slightly strange looking album cover. I've also been enjoying Neverending Space, which is the second record by a band called Chain of Flowers, who are Cardiff-based. Their first record, their debut, came out in 2015, so there's quite a gap between this and their follow-up, but it's absolutely wonderful. I think this is going to be another summer record for me. It's kind of shoegazy, kind of post-punky. Quite hard to describe unless you listen to it, but it definitely reminds me a lot of those kind of um, 80s bands that we know and love. Um, Another second album which I've been enjoying is Squid's record, O Monolith, which is the follow-up to their 2021 album Bright Green Field, which I definitely talked about on our end-of-year roundup for that year. Um, It's more spiritual than their first album. That's their description, not mine. Their first album reminded me 
a great deal of talking heads, which was probably why I loved it so much. But mm. this is slightly tonally different, but it's just as wonderful. It only came out a few weeks ago, so I've only had a very limited time with it. But it's something I think that is going to end up being on my best of the year list. And then finally, something that is very, very recent, Military Gun released their first full-length titled Life Under the Gun. They're an LA-based hardcore band. This record came out, like I said, on the 23rd of June, so hot off the press. They released two EPs in 2021, All Roads Lead to the Gun Part 1 and Part 2, which I absolutely loved. I saw them twice last year, once with Show Me the Body and then with Fiddlehead. Um, But they're just a very nice example of kind of like, I guess, contemporary hardcore. I don't spend as much time listening to hardcore and punk these days as I used to. So they're just a very good example of, I'm sure, what is going on uh, in those particular genres. I feel so out of the loop, which kind of bums me out sometimes. But yeah, I've enjoyed the couple of spins at length that I've given this since Friday. What about you? What else have you been listening to? I have been listening to uh, Homefront's first full-length LP. So Back in 2021, I spoke very highly of their EP, Think of the Lie. Homefront are a two-piece from Canada, and this full length definitely expands on um, what I what I think they're so good at. It's it's kind of punk, new wave, pop, indie combo. It is it feels like a contemporary sound that resembles a lot of the bands that I love from the 80s, in particular. So like The Cure and Echo and the Bunnymen. There's a really great quote which I found online which says we may have only dreamed that Tears for Fears might have been going to see GBH at the weekend or that Annie Lennox spent her evening sewing crass patches to her Wrangler bluebell jacket but Homefront have rung the dinner triangle for us all to feast which I think is (laughs) very very apt and I really love um so yes I've loved that uh, I've loved Kalela's second studio album, Raven. Um, I think we both really enjoyed her first, her debut, Take Me Apart, which I still spin pretty regularly. This is a bit slower and it's kind of hazier R&B. It's very, it's it's personal, it's political, it's introspective, and it's it's a very beautiful listen. And I like to put it on when I kind of want, want to wind things down a bit. So that's been a really lovely record. Fever Ray's Radical Romantics, which is their third studio album by um, Swedish musician Fever Ray. I was a big fan of their self-titled record when it came out in 2009. That's wild. It's too. It's just too long ago. It's mortifying. Um, and then randomly, I didn't. I didn't really listen to the second one, and I'm not sure why. But then I'd uh, I'd seen this kind of crop up. Fever Ray is known for um, very cool costumed looks. I, I I think I could say. Um, and I'd seen this sort of sort of alien-esque sort of outfit that they've been rocking at the moment which I thought looked pretty cool and I'd also seen that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross aka my boys had contributed to this record too (laughs) so I felt like I had to listen and I really really like it it's weird synth pop with industrial undertones it's it's just great really it's kind of it's, it's very much about love but it's in a very dark, weird way. And I really loved their Glastow performance. They performed at Glastonbury last weekend. I watched it from the comfort of my sofa at home. And I love their choreographed, costumed, very atmospheric performance. So um, that is truly, truly great. 
Uh, and then another very recent release that I have been enjoying is uh, Janelle Monae's fourth album, The Age of Pleasure. Um, it's the first release since Dirty Computer in 2018, which I know we both really, really enjoyed. Have you watched the video for Lipstick Lover yet? I haven't, but I've seen so many screen grabs of it. Oh, it's all over social media, isn't it? All over social media. Seems like a lot, though. It's super sexy. It's very <laughs> indulgent. It's very celebratory. There's a lot of boobs and bum. It's just a really fun video. I think it's great. I made Wes watch it as well because I was like, this is so much fun. What a lovely video. And the whole record is just a very, very summery vibe. So again, we can add that to our, our mega playlist of records that we're going to be playing this summer because it's it, it's it's a lot of fun. Some other records that our friends and listeners have recommended are uh, Tori said that she loved Boy Genius's The Record. Rob also loves Janelle Monae's The Age of Pleasure. And then Mark thankfully let me know that Softkill have a new record, uh, Meta World Peace. I'm livid because I didn't realise they actually had a new record out this <laughs> month. So very annoying. Um, as well as Obituaries Dying of Everything, which I'm sure Wesley Brown has been enjoying as well. And finally books. I always find it funny when we talk about books because of everything, um, books feel like the, the hardest thing to um, keep within the year that you're reviewing them because, you know, you don't, ugh, books take a while to read. So you always end up reading a bunch of stuff that you're like, oh, that didn't even come out this year. So um, I in particular feel like uh, usually I read a lot of um, new releases because of my job. And I have done so again this year, but I haven't loved a lot of them. So there's only three that I've, no, four that I've really, really enjoyed. Um, and the others have not been from um, 2023. But how about you? Do you want to do you want to start off um, and tell me what um, you've enjoyed? Yes, of course. So I'll start with the most obvious thing that seems like the most you and me book release of the year so far. Um, it is, of course, Shy by our favourite Max Porter. It's always nice when you get a year where you get a Max Porter release. Isn't it lovely? What a treat. Um, so Shy is the story of a few strange hours in the life of a troubled teenage boy. He's escaping the last chance, a home for very disturbed young men and walking into the haunted space between his night terrors, his past and the heavy question of his future. I finished this one when I was in the middle of a slightly weird reading blip and I'm already looking forward to going back to it primarily because it's not a particularly long book but it is very very layered and it did take me a while to finish not because of its length but just because of my brain but I just I mean you and I absolutely adore Max Porter's writing I think that he just does such fascinating things with words and sentences structure he plays around with sound a lot particularly because Shy himself is a big fan of jungle and drum and bass music and we had the fortune of seeing Max talk about this book around the time of its release and I just think that he just talks so eloquently about the things that he is writing about this book in particular obviously tackles teenage boys and adolescents and you know the the trials and tribulations of negotiating that and I just thought it was brilliant yeah beautiful as always um Max does like writing short dense books um, mm -hmm. And he hasn't yet let us down. He, his writing has a very beautiful, haunting, lyrical quality. 
but and I also think this book in particular fills um all of his books deal with vulnerability but um I really felt it in particular this time because I we don't always get to hear vulnerability from a young man so I found this to be a really tender portrayal of quite a, a tumultuous character I guess and yeah I just I just love his work I don't I, I can't help but fangirl over it at this point I just think he what he's doing is so unlike anyone else out there and I think there are a few people that are now attempting to replicate what he does and I just don't think you can do it it's kind of yeah it's like magic in a little bottle isn't it nobody comes close he's one of a kind I think and I'll always look forward to seeing what he does next good job Max Porter thumbs up Another book that I know we've both enjoyed um, and that you read very recently because I lent it to you is Children of Paradise by Camilla Grudova. This is sort of cheating because it the hardback came out last year, but the paperback came out in 2023. So that counts, right? It 100% counts. Totally counts. We're counting it. Great. So this is a book that I picked up because it is um, based at the Paradise, which is one of Edinburgh's oldest cinemas. And the, the narrator joins the cinema um, as a new member of staff. And she's kind of working very much by herself to begin with, but she eventually becomes a part of this very oddball gang of staff who definitely spend an uncomfortable amount of time with each other, uh, whilst also having to negotiate horrible work hierarchies and corporate takeovers. And it's just a very, it's such an easy read. It's just a very charming, odd, violent, dark oddly familiar story <laughs> I think and you you've literally just finished it you enjoyed it as well right yeah I read it in essentially 24 hours it took me two evenings utterly consumed it in such rapid succession I yeah I just loved it I thought it was absolutely I mean it is basically catnip for you and I in that it's talking about cinema something we love films something we love and then just weird slightly strange things that happen within contained spaces Mm. and I just thought yeah the characters were so well realized I immediately had a very vivid sense of who they were as individuals and the slightly strange peoples that you would get working in an environment like this but yeah just brilliant what an absolutely fascinating book very very cool brilliant at work um and I can't wait to read is it the doll's alphabet her short story collection that's going to be kind of next on my list I think because it yeah just a really tremendous voice like you I think like I've read a few things from this year but I haven't necessarily loved a whole lot Mm. something I did on audiobook was Fern Brady's book strong female character Fern is a stand-up comedian and writer And the brief synopsis for the book itself is this is a story of how being female can get in the way of being autistic and how being autistic gets in the way of being the right kind of woman. And it sort of explores things like class, mental health, societal pressure and individual kind of attempts at trying to negotiate yourself through the world as an autistic woman. Fern talks very candidly about her experience of being neurodiverse. Um, And I saw her do stand up in the spring this year and it was really interesting to see sort of what she touches upon in her stand-up routines versus what she actually mentions in the book Mm. I loved doing this as an audiobook primarily because it was lovely to hear Fern tell her own story and it was just an utterly fascinating look at the nuances of being autistic and obviously everyone's experience of being autistic is extremely individual to them as a person 
So she's not attempting to sort of say, you know, this is how it is for everyone at all. She talks at length about the, how that isn't the case. Um, but yeah, it's just really funny at times, really heartbreaking at times um, and definitely worth spending some time with. I think this week I saw on Twitter that Bob Odenkirk, the Bob Odenkirk, gave her a shout out because he'd just finished reading this, which that's a fairly good endorsement, I think. That's the highest of praise, isn't it? And then something else I read very recently, I finished it at the weekend, in fact, and I think I'm going to say now is probably going to be my favourite book of the year so far, is mm. Close to Home by Michael McGee. Synopsis for it is, Sean's brother Anthony is a hard man. Sean was supposed to be different. He was supposed to leave and never come back, but Sean does come back. After arriving home from university in Liverpool, he finds Anthony's drinking is worse than ever. Meanwhile, all the jobs in Belfast have vanished and Sean's degree begins to feel like it isn't worth the paper it's written on. Um, It's a really, really tender and powerful look at life in Belfast, particularly growing up in the wake of the Troubles, post-conflict, particularly about being working class, the effect that poverty has on your life. Um, I'd seen this recommended by a few people I know, but it really did bowl me over. Um, everyone in it feels so well realised. You relate to Sean at times, particularly because of how he graduates into a fairly dire financial circumstance um, in his city. I remember graduating into the recession in 2008 and nine, and that was bad enough then. Um, so I know it's even worse now. Um but yeah, it's just an utterly, utterly fascinating book. And I feel like I'm going to spend the rest of the year recommending it to everyone I know. And I think it's heavily based on Michael McGee's own experience of growing up in Belfast as well, which sort of gives it the extra authority that it and probably explains why it's so creates such a vivid picture of the city itself. And a few other non-2023 things I'll just quickly shout out. Um, I loved Philippa Snow's book, which, as you know, means violence, which looks at those who enact violence on themselves for art, entertainment and other culture in the 21st century. I picked it up because it mentioned Jackass, <laughs> but it also mentions things like performance art and Marina Abramovich and things like that. And it's just a very, very fascinating look at all aspects of violence across the cultural spectrum. Um, something you bought me for Christmas in 2022, in fact, was Small Fires by Rebecca May Johnson, mm. which is a memoir about reading and writing about food and the relationship that we have to food and cooking throughout our lives. I absolutely loved Liberation Day by George Saunders, which is his first short story collection in 10 years. And I finally got round to reading some Annie Erno. I loved Happening, which is from the year 2000. can't believe it was 23 years old already, which is her look back at an abortion that she had in France in 1963 and is based heavily on her journal entries that she kept around the time and in the aftermath. It's an utterly, utterly powerful look at what it means to sort of experience something like that and the reasons behind it. Um, and it was made into a film, actually, which I'm going to try and watch sometime soon because um, I'm sort of fascinated to see how it's adapted. Well, I've got a couple of extra books that um, have been published in 2023 that I would certainly recommend, one of which is Wandering Souls by Cecile Pin, 
it's well, it's either Cecile or it's Cecily. I'm not entirely sure which, but this is um, a brilliant debut novel about a family of Vietnamese refugees as they navigate their way through Thatcher's Britain and they're guided by the voice of their dead little brother. Um, it's a short book. It's extremely powerful. It's heartbreaking, but somehow still manages to be hopeful. And it's something that I think everyone in Britain should be made to read especially at the moment. And then the other book that I've really loved, which uh, is being published on the 6th of July, so very, very soon, is Penance by Eliza Clark. And this follows her debut, Boy Parts. And this is the fictional true crime story of um, the murder of a 16-year-old girl by her three friends in a sleepy seaside town in England. And it's a story that is pieced together through fictional witness accounts, interviews, true crime podcasts, all of the ways that we kind of, I guess, pull together our information and the stories around us today. It's I don't want to say it's a very millennial voice, but actually here I am saying it is It is quite... A, Eliza does have a, a, a millennial voice. It feels like a very of-this-moment voice and it contains kind of references and observations to things that as a former young woman and now a slightly older woman are all very familiar and a bit uncanny and weird and dark and humorous for me to look back on. Um, and it's also a story that is uncannily similar to real life so it's not just the the context of the murders and our obsession with true crime but also you know even the the local celebrity paedophile who is exposed after um becoming very very famous and beloved for his philanthropic work so it sounds very familiar um yeah it's just a really really entertaining well, I shouldn't even say entertaining because it feels bad saying entertaining, but um, I can safely say entertaining because it's fictional. It's just a, a very engrossing read. And then a few other books that I've enjoyed that haven't been published this year, but aren't far behind, to be fair, the last couple of years. Um, one is Mother Thing by Ainsley Hogarth. And this is a darkly funny domestic horror novel about a woman who must take drastic measures to save her husband and herself from the vengeful ghost of her mother-in-law. A, a lazy comparison would be to say that it is Mosfeg-esque, which um, is now entering the lexicon. So get ready for that alongside <laughs> memeable. Um, it's a strange and funny and shocking story hugely entertaining but also deals with kind of death and grief through a very likable and relatable narrator. Two non-fiction uh, collections about cinema actually that I've really really enjoyed are um, She Found It at the Movies, Women Writers on Sex, Desire and Cinema edited by Christina Luland which uh, was lent to me by you and I'm sure you have um, reviewed in a past episode as well as part of a sort of end of year roundup. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, I think you did. It explores women's secret desires, teen crushes and one-sided movie star love affairs. So it's very much turning uh, the the century-old male gaze on its head through this book. It's a book designed for us, basically. It's designed for this podcast. It's wonderfully validating to hear other women share their thirsty stories. Uh, and I thought it was very, very well written and very well pulled together. And the other book on a similar vein is It Came From the Closet, Queer Reflections on Horror, edited by Joe Valesi. This came out at the end of last year. Um, it's not 
the easiest to source in the UK, but I did get it from an independent bookshop, so you can too. And this is looking at horror films through a queer lens. So through uh, queer and trans writers, they're kind of considering the films that have illuminated their own experiences. And this sort of spans everything from um, Jennifer's Body to Jaws to Halloween to Hereditary. And it's, yeah, it's very much a collection that is not just analytical, it is deeply personal, which is what I love most about essay writing. And I've followed a lot of the writers on social since because I thought they were all just incredibly articulate and, and well put together little think pieces. So I really, really enjoyed that. And then finally, I read a short story collection called The Black Dreams, Strange Stories from Northern Ireland, which is edited by Reggie Chamberlain King. And this is a collection of um, commissioned stories that explore uh, the geography of growing up and living in Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland of the past and of the, the today. And it looks at, I guess, Northern Ireland through a slightly strange in-between state of sort of reality and unreality, reliability and unreliability and sort of traces across death and rebirth and violence, um, obsessions, the apocalypse, so many, so many different themes. It's kind of a, it's, it's a weird, uncanny little book, really. And it's got some really brilliant contributors, some sort of very established Irish writers, as well as some of the best new talents sort of coming out of Northern Ireland as well. So I thought there was not a dud in it, which is quite unusual for a short story collection, I think. So I really, really loved that. A few recommendations from um, listeners include Over Glasgow by Stuart Braithwaite and Devil in a Coma by Mark Lanigan, and those were both recommended by Mark. Haunting Adeline by H.T. Carlton by Elizabeth, and Talking Scared Pod recommended The Deluge by Stephen Markley, The Ferryman by Justin Cronin, and Mayfly by C.J. Lead. And there we have it. Lovely. Well done us. First six months of uh, 2023 wrapped. We've had a good time. We have had a good time and there's lots on the horizon too. There are some really strong things due to come out soon. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, what we end up adding to these lists when we come to do our 2023 full end of year roundup. Yeah, I'm always quite interested to see if anything drops off the list. And if by the end of the year, I'm like, I don't know why I love that so much. What if we suddenly just go really hard in on Oppenheimer? Become really big Oppenheimer heads. <laughs> Just big Oppenheimer heads. It's <laughs> great. Um, but if anyone else has any other recommendations for us, things that they've really loved, or things that they really disagree with us on, um, please do send them over to us because we'd be really interested to hear them. You can find us on Twitter. We're at the first and Instagram at the thirst pod, or you can drop us an email on the thirst pod at gmail.com. As Steph said, please let us know what you think of anything we've discussed and definitely remind us of things, glaring emissions we've missed from our lists. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And perhaps you could even give us a nice review because it helps people to find us with ease. We'll share lists of everything we've mentioned today over on our blog at thethirstpod.wordpress.com and we'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes as well to make it very easy for you to find. Thank you very much. Bye.